Hi, this is Sarah with a quick message about format before this episode commences. I just want to let you know that the early episodes of Let's Talk About Sects differ slightly from later episodes, as the production evolved as I rolled out season one. These first few episodes use voice actors, but it's an element that I decided to abandon after episode four. I want these episodes to remain available to the public, even though they don't represent the current podcast format. But if it's not to your taste, you can start with episode five about universal knowledge. Otherwise, thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the podcast. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ken Dyers passed away 10 years ago this year, but the organization that he spearheaded with his partner Jan Hamilton lives on. In spite of a few parallels, this Australian organisation, called Kenja, has been listed as a suppressive group by the Church of Scientology. Jan claims that Kenja has faced decades of persecution by those who want to bring them down, including a Member of Parliament, and charges levied at the organisation include brainwashing, exacerbation of psychological illnesses with dire consequences, alienation from family and friends, and sexual abuse. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. If you need a refresher on how we define the word cult for the purpose of this podcast, you can head to ltaspod.com. It should be said that the group we're talking about today fiercely rejects the term being used in association with its activities. Kenja is a Japanese word meaning wisdom, but for this Australian sect, the word was actually formed by combining the first names of its leaders, Ken Dyers and Jan Hamilton. With a focus on an approach that they refer to as energy conversion, there are some parallels with Om Shinrikyo, which we spoke about in episode 3. But it appears that Ken Dyers was most influenced by his experiences with Scientology. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast will deal with issues that some people may find disturbing, including manipulative behaviours, sexual assault including of minors, and references to suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. A quick note on format. Where I quote extensively from other sources, I've used voice actors, and that's mainly to give you a break from my voice. 
Janice Rita Hamilton was born in 1948 and found that she had a love of acting in early childhood, studying speech and drama from the age of five. Jan graduated from University High School in Melbourne, where she was school captain in 1966, and her high school yearbook entry lists a few acting highlights, including a part as Elizabeth Proctor in Arthur Miller's The Crucible, continuing on to say, quote, She has a dream to be Saint Joan, partly facilitated by her hairstyle, whose martyrdom may have had some bearing on the decision to make her career teaching. Jan went on to study physics at Melbourne University, then taught physics for one year before returning to her love of acting, being awarded an Australia Council grant to study in London for three years from 1974 until 1977. In the UK, through her acting, Jan was introduced to a form of clowning that would heavily influence her life's work from there on in. In the late 1970s, Jan met a man called Ken Dyers. Kenneth Emmanuel Dyers was born on July 14, 1922, to Florence and Charlie Dyers. He was the youngest of three children, with an older brother Frank and older sister Eileen. According to a Sydney Morning Herald article dated August 4, 2007, Kenja's website at that time claimed a rags-to-riches story of scrounging on Sydney streets during the Great Depression, leaving home at 14, and odd jobs including cleaning pots at a college and working as a butcher before joining the army. When I accessed the website in October of 2017, these references were no longer there, nor some of the more impressive entries about Ken's army career. From the Herald article, quote, Dyers claimed to have served with distinction as an artilleryman with the Australian 9th Division during World War II, seconded to British counterintelligence, and then seeing action at El Alamein. He also tells a story of being at Lye and Finchifin in New Guinea, where his bodyguard, a Corporal Appel, was hit by a grenade and died in Dyers' arms, a moment which fuelled Ken on his ceaseless drive to help people enhance their own lives. End quote. Compare this to the current website copy, and I quote again. A combat soldier in the Second World War, he saw action in El Alamein and the landings at Lye and Finchifin. End quote. What is verifiable in the National Archives of Australia is that Ken Dyers was court-martialed twice in 1944, the second instance involving an AWL, or absence without leave, from 5 to 21 June, resulting in a demotion of his rank and a fine, and that his discharge paperwork in 1946 lists mental instability as a disability, with the degree of disability stated as 10%. The Sydney Morning Herald article previously referenced also lists a third court-martial and two more fines for various offences. It also mentions, after the war, two failed marriages and two sons, which aren't listed in Ken's biography at all on the Kenja website today. Ken married Judith Scott Fox in August 1946, but the marriage only lasted four years, and they divorced in September 1950. Just six months later, Ken was remarried, in March 1951, to Marie O'Donnell, 
with whom he had two sons, Mike and Steve. However, his marriage to Marie also ended in divorce in 1973. During these years, Ken copyrighted a publication called A Simple Accounting System in 1950, and again according to past Kenja biographies online that are difficult to corroborate, also invented an egg carton, traded in precious stones, and worked for Consolidated Press and as a company director, though for which company it's not clear. Another Sydney Morning Herald article in 2010 refers to Ken as a former encyclopedia salesman. A story that Jan would later tell at Ken's eulogy is as follows. After the war, one of the first jobs he tried was as a salesman. He was selling his first pitch to a shopkeeper. Being a new ex-soldier, Ken simply put the proposition for the sale to him and expected him to say either yes or no but the shopkeeper embarked on a not uncommon peacetime game of stringing Ken along, playing with him covertly, playing the peacetime game of, oh, maybe I'll buy your product, but let me put you through the mincer first. Ken leant over the counter, pulled the man by his collar off his feet and said, look, do you want to buy the dash dash thing or not? He bought it and Ken made his first sale. The current Kenja biography says that he then began consulting with US-based holding companies on executive mental health. A number of sources also mention that Ken was involved in Scientology at some point, though I couldn't discover the years of his involvement. It's apparent that he was heavily influenced by some of the ideas that he encountered there. By the time he met Jan Hamilton in 1978, Ken had already begun some form of what would become known later in Kenja as energy conversion meditation. Jan was running clowning workshops at this point, and offered some of her students up for Ken to work with. Here Kenja's website claims that, quote, the quantum leap in their ability to communicate, to relate to an audience, to take direction and duplicate, was immediate. Demand for a training that combined Ken and Jan's disciplines was immediate. Thus, in 1982, Kenja was formed. Filmmakers Luke Walker and Melissa McLean were granted unprecedented access to film Ken Dyers, Jan Hamilton and Kenja for their feature-length documentary Beyond Our Ken in 2007, which I recommend checking out if you're interested in this group. Dr Rachel Cohn interviewed Melissa McLean along with former attendee Bevan Hudson for the Spirit of Things program on ABC Radio National in November 2008. Here's what Melissa said about the unlikely meeting of Ken and Jan's practices. Certainly very few of the ideas that I came across in Kenja seemed terribly original. This idea of being a spirit and being a body, two separate things, is not all that unique. They needed the human part, the idea of having the inner child, to make it seem fun, because otherwise Kenja's pretty heavy. You've got a lot of the spirits attached to you that are bringing you down, that are stopping you reach new potential. You need to get rid of those through energy conversion. Energy conversion is hard, draining work. 
You need this concept of the inner child to make it fun, and you get to play and do clowning classes, and Jan was in charge of clowning, or the human, and Ken looked after the spirit. Classes weren't limited to clowning. They also included ballroom dancing, ballet, music, gymnastics, choir, poetry and sporting teams, all involving a financial outlay which Kenja claimed always went back into the action, as they called it. Ken's process of energy conversion involved sitting knee-to-knee with himself or another meditation consultant, otherwise known as an MC, that had been trained in processing, as it's known in Kenja. The MC and the subject stare deeply into each other's eyes, and the MC draws out of the subject thoughts or issues from their past or present that Kenja adherents believe are negative spirits, attached to each person, which need to be cleared. Here's Ken talking about this in the documentary. There's a chain of attached spirits, which goes right back past this lifetime, right back to other lifetimes. When that happens, it's no good me stopping this here, because if I've got to get to the final uh, beginning, which could be 20 lifetimes ago. So that could take me five hours to do that. Four hours, which is more likely. Mm. Four hours. So I've, I've, I've done sessions for four hours. And intense, just because this identity hasn't got a body there, doesn't it say it's not there. One attached spirit could control 15% of your life. Another one could control another 20%. So each time, a section of your life is free. Former Kenja attendee Bevan Hudson says in Adrian Norman's 2009 educational documentary, Visions of Paradise. We believe that in our natural state, we are almost superhuman, human nova. And we only had to do the meditation work to clear blockages and arrive at that state. From the Kenja website, quote, Over more than 60 years of his life, Ken Dyer's researched, developed and simplified energy conversion meditation in order to remove dogma, significance and belief from the spiritual equation. Interestingly, Ken's time in Scientology isn't mentioned anywhere as an influence during his 60 years of research and development of the energy conversion technique. Psychologist Louise Samways published a book called Dangerous Persuasions in 1994, which looks at a number of groups operating in Australia at the time, including Kenja. Her view is that while some of these self-improvement groups may be using similar methods to those effectively utilised by qualified professionals, the danger is that they aren't accountable to anyone, and that those undergoing the treatments aren't doing so with informed consent, which can make the consequences catastrophic. Because, unlike Scientology, Kenja doesn't position itself as a religion, this is one way the group rejects any accusation that they might be cult-like. Certainly when Luke Walker and Melissa McLean first started researching their documentary, they weren't sure whether they really had a feature film, as the group overall seemed like a fairly harmless self-help scheme. Luke attended Kenja sessions for six months prior to commencing filming on the documentary and told the Sydney Morning Herald that the main thing he felt was exhaustion at feigning enthusiasm 
rather than that there was anything sinister going on. Melissa told Richard Feidler in an ABC radio interview in September 2008 that she didn't have a sense of the group being anything other than innocuous until she started talking to ex-attendees. Former adherent Bevan Hudson noted to Rachel Cohn on ABC Radio National that the influence of Jan's acting passion seemed helpful to the way that Ken was positioning himself to his followers. He'd created a new persona for himself, and that he was an ex-businessman and an ex-returned serviceman, a highly successful director of public companies, a wonderful husband to his wife, and all that sort of stuff. And he was just manufacturing that and believing it and selling it all the time, owning it. I listened to an actor once, talking about how he developed a character, and he would create the core truth of the character, and then he slowly lay over sort of aspects, shading, characterizations, persona. You know, aspects of that person would be a layering process, until he finally created a composite character. And this is sort of what happened. As the years went on, he's finessing this character, rebuilding this character, looking at the market, seeing what the market wants. Bevan was around for the formation of Kenja and became good friends with Ken. He ended up sticking with the organisation for 25 years. When Rachel Cohn asked Bevan what kinds of things he was learning from Ken at the start, he replied, He introduced some wonderful galactic concepts. You know, he'd come from another planet. I don't know if everyone believed that. You know, you take it with a bit of a grain of salt. He had a xenon. It was a similar xenon to obviously another big organisation that I probably shouldn't name. But his xenon seemed to be a lot older. It was about a billion years old instead of a million years old. The Church of Scientology tried to stop Ken from imparting his teachings, listing Kenja as a suppressive group. A memo to all orgs and missions was circulated in July 1992 under the following introductory paragraph. This issue is the list of declared suppressive persons and suppressive groups. It is for your use to safeguard the lines of your org or mission and to ensure that these individuals or members of these groups are not connected to or on lines at your org or mission in any way. Here's Ken Dyers himself talking about Scientology from the DVD extras of Beyond Our Ken. I would never do anything against Scientology. They've got different viewpoints than I've got. They've got a machine to, to, to tell you what's going on with the other person. I don't use a machine, I just use me. I'm a spirit, so I don't need a machine. Okay? They use a machine because they've got to get people operating. They're going to clear the planet. They want to clear the planet. I just want to clear a person. So they're using a machine to get through the numbers. They're all right. They're, they're, I don't care whether they are doing it my way or whether I agree with what they're doing it or not. They are making people aware that they are a spirit and they'll eventually outgrow that and want to be independent and do their own research, like I did. Carol M. Cusack, a professor of religious studies at the University of Sydney, wrote a paper called Squirrels and Unauthorised Uses of Scientology, included in a 2017 edited collection called Handbook of Scientology which examines three examples of unauthorised uses, including Kenja. Squirrels was a term coined by L. Ron Hubbard himself to describe such breakaway groups. 
She notes parallels, including Ken Dyer's workshops on communication with time, space and energy, reflecting Hubbard's MEST or matter, energy, space, time. Ken's use of tone scale to measure emotion and behaviour. His total rejection of psychology and psychiatry, whose legitimacy is also denied by Scientologists and his strong anti-drug and alcohol stance, all reported by former attendee Annette Stevenson, whose experiences we'll talk more about later. Melissa McLean, in her interview with Richard Feidler, spoke about her impressions of how Ken and Jan's partnership worked. From watching them for over a period of a year, it struck me that he was the big ideas man, Mr Charisma, and she put it all into place, she made it all happen. She was very good with organising and structure, and she came up with all the extra activity things. When it first started, it was just clowning and just energy conversion, and she came up with this idea of creating a safe place to try all these different activities and do the Estedfords and the weekend workshops and make it a one-stop shop, which was part of its success. When you get everything you need from a group, that's the only place you go to. Those who got entirely involved would be expected to do two one-on-one energy conversion sessions per week, a group session, and some kind of Kenja-related activity most if not every night of the week. In 2008, when Melissa spoke to ABC Radio, she estimated this would equate to an outlay of around $400 per week. For international listeners, that's substantially more than what I'm paying a week in Sydney Sharehouse rent 10 years later, as a reference point. Bevan Hudson told the Sydney Morning Herald in 2010 that it was like a pyramid sales system similar to Amway. Processors herd the greater body of members into fee-generating endeavours, with Hamilton and Dyers sitting atop the cash flow. Most of those who end up in Kenja are by all reports lovely people who are looking to make the world a better place through self-improvement. Kenja adherents have included many successful business people, university graduates, tradespeople, and even former Olympian and Commonwealth Games athletes. People are generally recruited into Kenja through word of mouth, with participants inviting their friends along to a lecture or show, and from there they'll learn more about the offerings. At that point, they can become involved as much or as little as they feel they'd like to, which is another way that the group denies having cultish aspects. But for those who buy in 100%, they've spoken of finding that most of their waking hours are taken up by group activities, of needing to undertake energy conversion sessions multiple times a week, of much of their disposable income being fed into the group, and of having little time for sleep. Because Kenja has a no-drugs policy, including alcohol, This is often mentioned as a way to distance people from their family and friends, framed as it being beneficial to avoid those who do drink alcohol. Jan Hamilton spoke about this in Beyond Our Ken. If you have an alcohol problem and you come from a family of alcoholics and you go home and mum and dad are drinking and you want to stop drinking alcohol, then mum and dad may perceive that you are intending to cut from them. That's their perception, but the reality is the child is just attempting to free themselves of alcohol. So is it really that they're cutting from mum and dad? Because we say no, that doesn't happen. We encourage families. We've got an ethic there in Kenja, no one interferes with families. Uh, What's a mum's come with their their children? Yeah, exactly. 
The group has a charter of ethics that they subscribe to and demand of all adherents, and one strong one is that gossip is not allowed. In practice, this allegedly resulted in the discouragement of members having individual relationships with each other, outside of group activities, as they may be perceived as gossiping. Melissa McLean told Richard Feidler that in the making of the documentary, Ken himself always seemed to have at least four people around him at any given time. From Beyond Our Ken, his former attendee, Jenny Hodges. You really just, you, you didn't uh, just hang out and kind of get to know one another in a normal way. Um, so it's kind of strange. And certainly, um, if you left Kenja, that was it. Your friendships were over in terms of the Kenja people. Documentary filmmaker Luke Walker told the Sydney Morning Herald in 2008, The problem with Kenja is they practice a form of unregulated psychotherapy. That's what energy conversion is. The majority find it harmless, but when someone has a latent medical illness such as Richard Leap and Cornelia Rao, it exacerbates their condition. Luke said to me via email, Anyone who developed a mental illness became walking, talking, babbling proof that the Kenja processing didn't work, so the group would panic and throw them out. Richard Leap has been missing since April 1993. His sister Annette Leap spoke to Luke and Melissa for their documentary, as did an ex-Kenja follower on condition of anonymity and told of Richard's 4.5-year involvement with the group as a result of him wanting to work on issues he had related to childhood abuse. During his involvement, Richard was allegedly subject to a group session that involved sexual contact by a processor, and as a result his mental health spiralled, and Kenja rejected him entirely. He became homeless, and the last time Annette saw him, he was suffering acutely from paranoid schizophrenia. Here's what Jan and Ken had to say about Richard Leap in Beyond Our Ken. Can I, can I just ask something of the people out here, someone might know? Like you mentioned the name Richard Leap. There's nothing wrong with Richard. That's ages ago, isn't it? Mm, long, 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 long. Years. Years, and years, yeah, years and years and years and years. It was a long time ago. A, a guy called Richard Leap. <coughs> No, Richard, I don't even know the name. Cornelia Rao hit the Australian media headlines in early 2005 when it was discovered that she'd been wrongfully incarcerated in jail and then one of Australia's mandatory detention centres with so-called illegal immigrants, often refugees seeking asylum on humanitarian grounds, for over 10 months. She'd been involved with Kenja for just five months in 1998, but although her time there was short-lived, an in-depth article by Emeritus Professor Robert Mann in The Monthly says this period, quote, marked the turning point in her life, the disaster from which all else flowed. No one can know whether disaster would have come anyhow, some other way. End quote. During her involvement with the group, Cornelia's family became increasingly worried about her moods and how much time and money she was spending with Kenja. 
an anonymous letter purportedly from a former senior Kenja adherent was sent to a number of people in April 2005 when Cornelia Rao's story was national news and it told of her experiences with the group. I couldn't locate a copy of the letter itself, but it's quoted in the Robert Mann article in The Monthly, which you can find linked on our website. In it, Cornelia was said to have initially been embraced with open arms, then purposefully targeted for romantic seduction by a male member, referred to as a standard Kenja technique to keep lonely young people returning to the group. The next step was a so-called confront, which is mentioned as another Kenja technique that publicly humiliates someone by targeting their innermost secrets and feelings, presumably accessed earlier via an energy conversion session. Cornelia's time with Kenja came to a head in October 1998, when her performance at an Estedford in Melbourne was singled out for a confront by Ken, who accused her of letting him down and doing a terrible job. Apparently, due to her underlying mental health issues, this public shaming served to break Cornelia psychologically. From the letter again, in the monthly, quote, After the humiliation, she actually walked out of her life. Over the following day, she became an embarrassment to the leadership as she was talking incoherently and staring into middle space. On the evening of the ballroom dancing night, she was transported to an airplane at Tullamarine and told not to come back to Kenja. She was found driving on the wrong side of the road three days later in Sydney. Melissa McLean asked Ken Dyers whether he encouraged people to go and see a therapist. No. No, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's their life. No. I don't really... Uh, give that kind of advice. Because whether they go and see a therapist is what they... If I was to say that to it wouldn't make a bit of difference. If they needed to experience degradation, they needed to experience pain, they needed to experience what they're experiencing. More than half the world calls it karma. <laughs> or worse that effect. Yeah. But if a therapist can't help them, and if Kenji can't help them, who can help them? No one. Only themselves. themselves yeah. And they will go through it in time. Yeah. Maybe not in this lifetime, maybe in the next one. Maybe in another ten years they'll have gone past this level. So okay. I've got to protect the kids against that sort of thing, so I don't handle things like that. Yeah. Like this Rao girl. I, wouldn't, no. I don't want intention. No. I don't want to process it. They weren't prepared to handle bipolar, <laughs> does it? Yeah. No. They weren't prepared for that. I could, but I haven't got the time to do it. While it would be many more years before Cornelia Rao's name was splashed across the Australian media, it's clear that before Kenja, she had a successful career as a Qantas flight attendant, and after Kenja, she was diagnosed with first bipolar disorder and then schizophrenia, which would ultimately lead to her identifying herself as a German backpacker named Anna to Australian authorities and being incarcerated in a Brisbane jail, then South Australia's Baxter Detention Centre, for more than 10 months in 2004 and 2005. When 60 Minutes spoke to her after her ordeal, she mentioned her fear of being captured by Kenja as a reason for not revealing her true identity. And while one might assume that unlikely, with the group having abandoned Cornelia, her brief involvement with them was clearly still an influence on her life. 
Kate Blanchett recently announced that she's developing a television series called Stateless based on Cornelia Rao's story, which should be worth keeping an eye out for. By the time Cornelia was in the headlines, Kenja had already been in the sights of Liberal State Parliament member Stephen Much for over a decade. The Kenja Concert website claims that in 1993, quote, This was the beginning of the personal attack on Ken Dyers. We began to realise that very few journalists in the mainstream media would genuinely investigate our growing awareness of the identifiable group of people determined to destroy Kenja. In researching this podcast episode, I put a number of questions to Kenja's Sydney office in writing to try to get their side of the story, but to date I've had no response. Having heard from a number of former attendees, MP Stephen Much spoke for over three hours in a New South Wales Legislative Council hearing in April 1993, calling for an inquiry into cults in New South Wales, considering Kenja to fit the description and focusing on their activities in his address. It's fair to say that opposition member Judith Walker was highly critical of Much's motives throughout the hearing, suggesting he wanted a witch hunt. Stephen Much's perspective was, quote, A stand needs to be made against those who prey on the vulnerable to manipulate their consciousness and grow rich at the expense of the people they manipulate. It is not good enough to equate the right of religious freedom with the right to exploit in these ways and say caveat emptor. There's a long transcript record that you can access via the podcast website and the MP's presentation involved a number of different allegations. Stephen Much mentioned citing property searches for Ken Dyers, which showed that Ken and Jan owned multiple properties in some of Sydney's most exclusive suburbs, as well as a larger waterside house at Bundina that you can see in Beyond Our Ken. He also read out a number of letters that he'd received from former attendees. One was from a young man named Michael Beaver, and I'll read out portions of it now. Dear Mr Much, I was in Kenja for two years, leaving Kenja in late 1990. I was recently diagnosed as schizophrenic and was hospitalised five times during 1992 due to Kenja. I now want to write what I personally think of Kenja. I was only paying half price at Kenja, because I was then 17 years, but it still cost a lot of money, something like $100 per week. I paid $50 per week for a session, $15 for classes, and every month I had a workshop which was $100. As well, I was doing ballroom dancing and touch football, which made up the $100. Also, I was buying my meals at Kenja. No receipts were ever given. I was recently told that while Ken Dyers claims he makes no monetary gain, he makes between $5,000 and $7,000 per week. If this is true, it shows he is a liar. Whilst in Kenja, I was encouraged to disassociate myself from my family and friends. Because I had cut lines with my family and friends, I realised that I had no friends. This was very hard for me when I came out. If I meet Kenja people, they will say hello to me, but that is all they will say. They won't mix with you. I felt very lonely when I first came out. I had been told by Ken Dyers that I was a failure, 
and I began to realise that I was not. It was only the programming that had made me think that I was. The programming in Kenja makes one feel that Kenja is your only salvation. If you are made to leave as I was, you feel that you are worthless. After what I have been through, I feel that Kenja is dangerous, and I would like to see it closed down. How many more people do we have to see having psychological problems before this destructive cult gets closed down? I have heard of four other people who have had severe problems after leaving Kenja, and I have only been discussing it for six weeks. Who knows how many more people are suffering after being in Kenja? Why do people go along? Because I was under 18, my father had to go along and give the okay for me to attend. On the surface it looks fine. He went to an open night and heard a lecture. My father heard about the sporting activities and thought it was all right. But we were not given any details about the energy conversion sessions. When I was asked to book in for them, I asked about them and was told, you'll find out. Please feel free to contact me as I would like to see Kenja closed down and I am willing to fight this all the way. Yours faithfully, Michael Beaver Sadly, Michael Beaver died by suicide not long after writing this letter and his suicide note included the words This is now the end for me. I am weak, overtaken by spirits. I can't face life anymore. It's my right, my choice. Kenja is partly to blame, as it exposed me to truths. Melissa McLean said in her ABC radio interview with Richard Feidler, I think that anybody who was showing mental health issues was a bit of a loose cannon. And that would have conflicted with the happy facade that they liked presenting, that everyone was happy and everyone was having a great time. So anyone who was going to create trouble had to go. Psychologist Louise Samways added an afterword to her book in 2007, which notes that following publication, quote, There were even phone calls from some unqualified and inappropriately qualified people running personal development courses who were shocked to realise the potential harm they could do. To their credit, they were anxious to find out how they could avoid problems and better screen and inform participants of risks. One of the questions I asked Kenja was whether they have ever changed their screening or information processes to address these issues, but as I mentioned earlier, I haven't heard back to date. I'll update you if I do hear anything on the organisation's current perspective. Kenja claims that Stephen Much formed part of a long-running conspiracy against the organisation, started by Cult Aware. Even as recently as January this year, In response to an article printed in the Mossman Daily regarding Kenja's Australia Day celebrations on Balmoral Beach, Kenja's statement includes the words, The Mossman Daily has sought to rekindle smears and prejudices which are 25 years old. In 1992, Mr Stephen Much MP smeared Ken Dyers, the founder of the Kenja organisation, describing him as a seedy con man in the New South Wales Parliament under parliamentary privilege. In 
Mr. Much was subsequently completely discredited in court proceedings before a jury as having participated with others in a conspiracy to destroy the reputation of Mr. Dyers and the Kenja organisation, end quote. This recent press for the group was a result of a journalist quoting Mossman councillor Roy Bendel warning local residents about the dubious history of Kenja and to keep an eye out to make sure that they weren't using their Australia Day reenactments as a recruitment drive. It seems that each year, on January 26th, Kenja hires Balmoral Beach to conduct a reenactment of the landing of the First Fleet in 1788, which it has done since 2006. I found this interesting as a story I've come across a number of times now concerns Ken's father Charlie spending some years as a child being looked after by the local Aboriginal population at Daly Waters when he wandered off from his station at the age of three, returning to his family three years later at the age of six. In a couple of different places, Kenja claims that Ken had a special affinity with Aboriginal people through his father's experiences, especially in connection with their spiritual beliefs. And I'd suggest that reenacting what many Aboriginal people know as the invasion of their land each year may not be the best demonstration of this affinity. In terms of Kenja's fixation on a plot to bring them down, they often mention Coulter Ware, whose American counterpart was targeted by Scientologists for years before actually being taken over by the Church of Scientology itself. Here's Jan speaking in Beyond Our Ken. Coulter Awareness Network uh, is basically a hate group which means they operate on hate and the basic premises like the Ku Klux Klan. If you've got anything wrong with you, it's because of these people over here. Let's blame these people. And they motivate hate, they motivate anger, and they give people an excuse for what's happening to them now. In Australia, Kenja equates cult aware with cult information and family support, which lists itself as a non-profit started in 1996 by parents whose children had been recruited into cults. Kenja positioned Cult Aware as a group of disgruntled former Kenjans with a vendetta against the organisation. There's a disclaimer on the KIF's website's stories page that reads, This page is about groups, organisations or movements, which may have been called cults and or cult-like in some way, shape or form. But not all groups called either cults or cult-like are harmful. Instead, they may be benign and generally defined as simply people intensely devoted to a person, place or thing. An account from one person must be read as that. Ideas could have been taken out of context or have been misunderstood. Also, practices may change over time or between one centre and another. KIFS encourages readers to research widely before forming an opinion. Information from one single source would need to be judged against other sources and one's own personal experience. Therefore, the discussion or mention of a group, organisation or person on this page is not necessarily meant pejoratively. 
By comparison, Kenja includes KIFs on a page on their website entitled The Extreme Ideological Element in the Historical Attack on Kenja, in which it details being in the 1980s, quote, the target of attack by extreme Christian fundamentalists and right-wing media commentators. On the same page, Kenja details its defence in the initial round of criminal court proceedings, being that there was, quote, a conspiracy to attack Ken Dyers and destroy Kenja, involving these people, being MP Stephen Much and ex-Kenjans, and Cult Aware, which it explains is now known as KIFs. In 2012, Annette Stevens published a memoir called The Good Little Girl. In it, she details how she lost 10 years of her life to Kenja after attending a session at the age of 39. It's worth noting that she considers Jan Hamilton Ken's most important victim. Annette talks about coming across Kenja at a stage in her life where she was looking to change something to give her life meaning and deal with her issues. In Kenja, she felt that she'd found a supportive group who would help her improve as a person, and she was very taken with the charismatic Ken personally, who was 60 at the time that she joined. Annette was a true believer, who helped set up the Melbourne Centre and became a meditation consultant herself, including a period as Director of Energy Conversion. She ended up leaving her teenage children in Melbourne to move up to Sydney, where she lived in a share house with other Kenjans, gave up her teaching career, and channelled all of her energies into Kenja activities, sometimes doing menial jobs on the side to earn some money to put back into the organisation. A letter that she wrote to Stephen Much, that he read out in State Parliament, describes her state by the time she left the organisation. When I left, I felt like I was in two places at once, couldn't enunciate words, my eyes felt gritty and dry, couldn't make decisions, couldn't remember 90% of my time in Kenja, had nightmares, flashbacks, two car accidents while spaced out driving, couldn't sleep, couldn't work, cried most of the time. I had less than $10 and virtually no assets apart from an old car. Kenja knew of my financial state but had no hesitation in booking me in for a $100 session. I'd left. In her book, Annette also talks about naked energy conversion sessions with Ken Dyers, which a number of other women have spoken about as well. At the end of one, she writes that she seemed to exit a dissociative state to find Ken on top of her with his trousers around his ankles, but she couldn't recall what had happened. She trusted him completely, so didn't feel that it could have been anything untoward. Another letter sent to Stephen Much, on condition of anonymity when read out in Parliament, talked about naked processing sessions with Ken as well. Quote, exploring sexual hang-ups he felt I had, through mutual masturbation and oral sex. This then progressed to intercourse, and when Ken thanked her afterwards, she says, I asked him why he was thanking me, as it was meant to be a level of therapy. Sometime later, she continues... Ken asked the women in an advanced class to raise their hands if they had slept with him. 
Of the ten females present, at least eight put up their hands. On the 30th of March 1994, a woman made a statement at Rose Bay Police Station that she had been sexually assaulted by Stephen Much at her parents' home in 1978, when she was 18 years old. Although the police eventually dismissed the allegation and the Director of Public Prosecutions declined to pursue it, anonymous letters circulated amongst the media as well as the letterboxes of Stephen Much's constituents doing him a lot of damage. He told the Sydney Morning Herald later, It had a major effect on me, not only psychologically but politically. When the Herald contacted the accuser's mother in 2010, she said, Stephen didn't do anything, of course he didn't. The accusation was an awful thing in his life, and I naturally blame my daughter. But in a way I can't, because she wasn't in her right mind. Regarding the sexual aspects of processing, documentary filmmaker Melissa McLean called it a grey area and told Richard Feidler, It's generally considered that the person in the power situation in a therapy relationship, if they have sex with that person, is taking advantage and therefore it's abuse. But it was quite interesting that a lot of former Kenja attendees were saying, well, probably he shouldn't have done it, but that said, I think I got something out of it. Or, it helps me in some way. So it was, it was a good thing. That was really interesting. But then, for every one of those, there's somebody else who felt quite abused and taken advantage of. Apparently Jan was unaware that this was going on at first, and when she found out, she stopped it from happening for a time. I couldn't confirm whether anything along these lines is still happening today, with Ken no longer around. The power relationship and position of trust that Ken had placed himself in with these women certainly makes these allegations serious. But things wouldn't really come to a head for him until even more serious allegations arose. These were allegations of sexual assault against minors. After Stephen Much's three-hour presentation in Parliament, police started looking into some of the issues raised, and in 1995, Ken Dyers was charged with 11 counts of sexual assault against four minors from two different families. While he was eventually acquitted on 10 counts, he was initially found guilty of the 11th. I'm going to go into some of the details here, which are relevant due to Kenja's response to them, So skip ahead 30 seconds if you'd prefer not to hear these. There's a little coarse language too. The victim's account in the 11th charge follows. During an energy conversion session, Ken had asked her to take her shirt off for better access to her energy centres and had proceeded to fondle her breasts, kissed her on the head and cheeks and pulled her towards him by her arms before requesting that she remove her skirt. She did this, but then refused his following request to remove her underwear, at which point Ken swore at her, called her a bitch and stormed out. Her mother corroborates that when she returned to her daughter and Ken, Ken was yelling at her daughter and told them that they would have to leave Kenja. Her daughter was 13 at the time of the alleged assault in 1988. 
In a full-page ad that Kenja took out in a number of major newspapers, more about that later, under the heading, Let's Get the Facts Straight, it reads, quote, The one charge on which he was found guilty, tried separately, was a kiss on the forehead, end quote. Ken Dyers was sentenced to 12 months in jail with a non-parole period of four months for this charge, which was clearly about a lot more than a kiss on the forehead. He appealed the verdict all the way to the High Court, which in 2002 declined grounds for appeal that would have led to an acquittal, but accepted grounds for appeal that the judge in the original trial misdirected the jury. As a result, the High Court quashed the conviction and ordered a new trial, but the Department of Public Prosecutions declined to retry the case, considering that Ken had effectively served his sentence in the interim. Stephen Much had testified at these hearings, and had often found himself followed out of court by people talking to each other on walkie-talkies. He told the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, I was so freaked out at one stage that I jumped in a cab and came straight back to Parliament rather than get the train. It sounds silly, but you get paranoid because you really don't know what these people are capable of. In January 1994, some Kenjins had even turned up at his wedding, wearing sunglasses and floppy hats, taking photographs of guests and their car registrations. On April the 8th, 2005, Detective Senior Constable Graham Norris released the Norris Report, recommending further investigation of Ken Dyers. Following the recommendations, the New South Wales Police Force set up an operation called Strike Force Karula, and in October of 2005, Ken was arrested by officers from the Child Protection and Serious Sex Crimes Squad and charged with another 22 counts of aggravated indecent and sexual assault. This time the charges related to two girls who were aged 12 at the time of the alleged incidents in 2001 and 2002. Harland Coops, Ken's lawyer, told Sutherland Local Court that Ken had suffered erectile dysfunction for 15 years and therefore couldn't have committed the assaults. Outside the court, Ken read the following statement. This is a frame-up, no question. Another attempt to destroy me and Kenja. I am innocent. As long as my health holds up, I will fight these bogus charges. On the 8th of June 2006, Ken was indicted on 21 counts of aggravated indecent assault and aggravated sexual intercourse without consent. After declaring himself medically unfit to stand trial, Ken was granted a temporary stay of proceedings. By 2007, Ken was still out on bail pending an assessment by the Mental Health Tribunal. Documentary filmmaker Melissa McLean actually had police turn up with a search warrant as they wanted access to her tapes to prove that Ken was mentally fit to face his charges. She certainly formed the impression that he was able to answer any questions that she had for him during the filmmaking process. 
At this point in time in the making of Beyond Our Ken, Melissa asked Ken and Jan about the allegations of child sexual abuse. In some very striking documentary footage, this resulted in a pretty intense outburst from Ken Dyers, in which he goes on a tirade for some minutes. While a number of film reviewers saw Ken's outburst as a display of genuine angst and distress, his reputation for such outbursts in Kenja amongst attendees has been mentioned in a few places. It's possible that the footage instead captured a method that Ken liked to use, going on the offensive, to keep any criticism at bay. Melissa, when she was on the receiving end of this tirade, as she told Richard Feidler later, never believed him more than in that moment. In April 2007, Ken was notified of further allegations. On the 25th of July 2007, he received a phone call from his lawyer, informing him that the police wanted to interview him about the newest allegations against him. Later that same day, Ken Dyers died by suicide as a result of a gunshot wound to the head. The final charge against Ken Dyers was made by Alison Pells, whose father Michael Pells founded the Australian company Real Foods Proprietary Limited, which makes corn thins. I'm a fan of his work, and no, this is not a sponsored spot. Michael and his wife were featured in Beyond Our Ken, and at the time were glowing, claiming that Kenja had helped them to succeed with their business and in life. But Michael felt hugely betrayed by Kenja when his daughter told him of her assault. He says he had contributed up to half a million dollars to Ken's legal defence prior to this. Michael raised his daughter's claims with the Kenja executive, and the next day a female Kenja adherent had him charged with assault and took out an Interim Apprehended Violence Order, or AVO. He also received a call from Ken Dyers himself prior to his death, telling him that there had been accusations of rape against both Michael and his son by Alison in a processing session in March, which Alison denies. Michael was later found not guilty of the assault charge and the AVO was revoked. While Michael left Kenja along with Alison and his two other children, his wife remained involved and the two separated. Michael told me, quote, My ex-wife has never spoken with me or our three children since the day after I announced to the group that I would be taking action against Ken for the assault on my daughter. Every other member of the group also refused to speak with me. One mother that Alison and I visited at her home to warn her that her daughter was in danger from molestation by Ken refused to listen, claiming that we had both been taken over by evil entities that wanted to stop the good work that Kenja was doing towards the spiritual evolvement of mankind. He continued, We wandered off shaking our heads in disbelief. It was both distressing and amusing to Alison and me at the same time.
Following Ken's suicide, a statement was made on Kenja's website, as reported by Australian Associated Press, and included these words. This is a tragic day for Australia and for the human spirit. There has been a relentless attack on Ken and Kenja for over 20 years. This attack was launched by spurious so-called anti-cult groups, some politicians and individuals with criminal intentions who have fabricated false allegations of child sexual abuse against him. It is clear that Ken decided he could not, in his state of health, continue to fight any longer. With Ken deceased, Alison's case would never be heard in court, and Jan and Kenja decided to take a strange revenge on the former follower, who they held primarily responsible for Ken's passing. On October 17, 2007, in an incident that the judge ruling over the resulting court case called bizarre, Alison was invited to attend an audition at West Pimble Community Hall on Sydney's North Shore. Upon attending the audition, she encountered someone who she believed to be Jan Hamilton disguised as a man. She recognised other Kenjans, all dressed up in costumes and using fake accents, and immediately distressed, walked back out to Michael who had just dropped her off. Alison told the Sydney Morning Herald, I was in absolute terror. In my mind, it wasn't just that they were trying to scare me. I thought they were going to kill me. She and Michael re-entered the hall and could no longer see Jan, but requested one of the other Kenjans take off her costume. An independent witness says that the woman refused to do so and continued to claim that she was there for a play and that Alison should get up on stage and audition. Michael then took Alison to the police station to report the incident, and the independent witness reported her involvement in the strange audition later that night to police as well. In bringing the matter to court, Alison Pells was looking to take out an AVO to stop the harassment by Kenja and Jan. Jan's defence in the case contended that Alison was a compulsive liar who had staged the events and hired the hall herself under a false name. Jan presented an alibi for October 17, claiming that she was in her flat in Surrey Hills, and presented video evidence to prove this. I'll read directly from the court transcript here, from Magistrate R. Clisdell. That video was shown in evidence. Despite amusing some people sitting in court in support of the defendant, I found this video, to use that word again, bizarre. It had no logical theme, it was amateurish. It did, however, have some surprising features. Andrew Smith holding a newspaper towards the camera. A clock in the lounge room being shown at around 8pm for no logical purpose. The magistrate continues. When the tape begins, it has a date on the footage of 25 October 2007. The only credible explanation is that the tape was reused after 25 October 2007 to take the footage dated 17 October 2007. The judgment he gave was in favour of Alison Pells, granting her a two-year AVO against Jan Hamilton, as well as legal costs in the amount of $37,500. He found the video evidence, quote, an attempt to mislead the court or pervert the course of justice.
In spite of giving the documentary filmmakers unprecedented access to Ken, Jan and Kenja, the organisation was not happy with how Beyond Our Ken turned out. When it premiered at the Toronto Hot Docs Festival, two Kenja members went to the lengths of flying out to Canada to protest the screening, though the filmmakers in the end actually found this to be pretty good publicity. Many assumed that without the charismatic Ken Dyers at its helm, Kenja might not continue on. But the organisation under Jan Hamilton, instead of distancing itself from Ken and the allegations, has instead made him out as a martyr. That said, Michael Pells told me, quote, I believe that the sexual abuse of young girls within the Kenja organisation has ceased with Ken's death. That and the absence of a charismatic figure in the group, along with negative exposure on the internet, have all contributed to greatly reducing the harmfulness of Kenja's influence and the atrophying of the organisation. If it's any indication of popularity, there's a Ken Dyer's YouTube channel with video uploads of four months ago, having as few as 12 and a maximum of 70 views, compared to upwards of 5,000 views for the older videos. This year marks a decade since the passing of Ken Dyers. Every year, on the anniversary of his death, Kenja has paid an estimated $100,000 plus to take out a full-page ad in Fairfax media publications including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Canberra Times and the St George and Sutherland Shire Leader. With the first ad taken out two weeks after Ken's death, ABC television program Media Watch was highly critical of Fairfax for taking the payments, host Monica Attard saying, quote, Ken Dyer's followers say his death meant he'd never see justice over the allegations that he faced. But his alleged victims and their relatives feel the same way. Makes you wonder about the morality of a newspaper accepting money to publish one side of such a sensitive story. Kenja has been putting out what they call a theatre documentary, called Guilty Until Proven Innocent, every year since 2007, as their only other public performance aside from the annual Kenja concert, which showcases the prize winners from their Melbourne Estedford. On the documentary show's website is the only place I've seen Jan Hamilton mentioned as Jan Hamilton Dyers which struck me as coincidentally similar to Anne Hamilton Byrne of The Family, which we covered in episode one. The tagline of the show is, The extraordinary history of a frame-up. Jan Hamilton Dyers and friends expose the facts about the attack on Ken Dyers, Kenja, and your personal freedom. In his judgment against Jan Hamilton in August 2008, Magistrate Clisdell read the transcript of the show and found it to be a continuation of the harassment against Alison Pells in its content. Alison herself described it to the ABC's media watch as a bunch of slanderous lies in August 2009, when they were once again reporting on Fairfax Media taking an estimated $130,000 in ad money for the annual full-page tribute to Ken Dyer's. The more recent full-page ads have been less inflammatory and more of a reproduction of some of Ken's past speeches, but the first ads include attempts to undermine the credibility of the alleged victims, accusing them of deliberate lies in spite of one ad including the words, quote, 
The irony is that Ken always had compassion for the perpetrators of this attack and what they were doing to themselves in betraying honest help, friendship and love. At Ken's funeral on August 1st, 2007, 85 white doves, one for each year of his life, were released and skywriting formed the words, Ken Dyer's thank you. An excerpt from Jan's eulogy reads, He was constantly concerned that the group attacking us was using the same emotive power of child sexual abuse allegations to attack leaders in the church, in the defence forces, police and many forms of public office. For when we lose faith in those institutions meant to represent us, we become cynical and hopeless and we feel there is no fairness or there is no justice. We then become weak and become open to control by those that will wield power for their own agenda and not the good of the people individually and nationally. There are a multitude of opinions out there as to whether Ken Dyers and Jan Hamilton were motivated by the best of intentions with Kenja or by control and profit. There are those who would say that they have only ever benefited from their time with the group and there are those who would say the opposite. From the monthly article about Cornelia Rao's experiences by Robert Mann, quote, It seems clear that some of those involved with Kenja were equipped to survive the mind games, the creation of dependency, the undertone of violence, and the sometimes sexually charged meditation therapy. It is equally clear that others, including Cornelia Rao, were not. Another excerpt from Jan Hamilton's eulogy at Ken Dyer's funeral service reads, We who have lived with Ken throughout the decades of abuse against Ken and Kenja have seen a small number of happy, balanced, successful adults and children who joyed in their relationship with Ken and Kenja turn into nightmarish, evil monsters in an attempt to hide some criminal action they had undertaken which had been exposed in Kenja. Then they lied to themselves and others to hide it. They then became fodder to be used by forces that feel threatened by the existence of sanity, the spiritual universe, and the freedom of the human spirit. This makes an interesting contrast to what Stephen Much had to say to the Sydney Morning Herald in 2010 about the false accusations against him. Quote, the allegations affected me deeply and really impacted on my career. But I have always had sympathy for the woman who made them because she was brainwashed. In the end, I'm glad I raised concern about Kenja. It's one of the things I'm proudest about in my career. While Stephen Much's call to set up a committee to inquire into groups like Kenja never really went anywhere, his speeches in Parliament prompted the bulk of the media's scrutiny of the group. In Australia, in 2010, there was a federal call for a Senate inquiry into cult-like groups by Nick Xenophon, who was mainly pointing the finger at Scientology at the time. Then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said that he was also concerned about such groups, but ultimately both the Labor and Liberal parties voted against Nick Xenophon's motion with only the Australian Greens supporting it and the call for an inquiry was again defeated. Nick Xenophon told ABC Radio earlier that year, 
This is not about beliefs and what people can believe in, because people should be free to believe in whatever they want, but it ought to be about certain behaviours going beyond society's norms, and if those behaviours damage people, if they tear people apart from their families, if they cause financial destitution to people, and if it causes enormous psychological harm, then these are issues that ought to be the subject of reasonable protections. Today, Kenja runs three centres which they say are owned and operated by separate directors. The Human Communication Centre in Canberra, the Melbourne Centre for Effective Communication, and the Personal Evolvement Centre in Sydney. They still market their concerts by selling tickets to the general public. And a Facebook post went viral in 2015 when a mother who'd bought a ticket at a shopping centre became concerned after googling the organisation when she got home, so posted in a few groups to warn other parents off. Responding to a Fairfax media journalist, Jan Hamilton mentioned civil legal proceedings in the Supreme Court, which are also referred to on Kenja's website as, quote, seeking redress against those who were responsible for the circumstances that led to Ken Dyer's death. From what I could find on the New South Wales Case Law website, Jan is suing the State of New South Wales, asserting that, quote, the state is liable of the alleged misfeasance in public office of four police officers who investigated and charged her late de facto spouse, Ken Dyers, with sexual offences against children. It appears the case is ongoing, but judgments as recently as August last year have gone against Jan, who was denied subpoenaed documents under client legal privilege laws, appealed the decision, and was again refused access. In an amended statement of claim relating to the case, Jan claims that she witnessed Ken's suicide and that it was, quote, caused or actuated by the malicious and unlawful actions of four police officers, namely Detective Inspector Paul Jacob, Detective Sergeant Stuart Owen, Detective Senior Constable Graham Norris and Detective Senior Constable John Southgate. According to the appeal judgment notes, Ms Hamilton pleads that she has suffered psychological injury and harm and seeks aggravated and exemplary damages. This episode, I'll leave the last word with Kenja themselves. On their website, on the page entitled The Extreme Ideological Element in the Historical Attack on Kenja, a heading of conclusion precedes three dot points. Its final point begins with the following words. It is for others to judge whether Kenja is a destructive cult. Hundreds make this judgment every day.
the documentary Beyond Our Ken, from which the filmmakers graciously allowed me to play you some fascinating audio this episode, is available via their website www.beyondourken.com.au and also via iTunes. The links are available on our website, and you should definitely check it out if you found this episode interesting and would like to know more. A special thanks to Luke Walker and Michael Pells for their much-appreciated contributions to this episode. If you have been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com and the Freedom of Mind Resource Centre via freedomofmind.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. Voice work by Jessica McLean, Joe Gould and Emma Corrick. All information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. We're going to take an extra week's break over the festive season and we'll be back again in mid-January with our next episode. In the meantime, if you want to support the making of this podcast, you can find us on Patreon, review us on Apple Podcasts, or recommend us to friends and family who you think might enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely holiday season and we'll catch you again in the new year. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.